Thank you guys for your readings. So today's sermon is, uh, the title is, Could God Make a Rock So Heavy That I Could Not Lift It? Could God Make a Rock So Heavy That I Could Not Lift It? So this, as you can imagine, is going to be a little bit philosophical and also a little bit lighthearted because as you notice, I said it wrong, didn't I? That's not how you're supposed to pose it. And I did that on purpose. But first of all, I want to kind of uh, paint a picture of how I imagine this sermon playing out. One summer I spent tree planting. How many here have done tree planting? Mike, put up your hand. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, tree planting, as some of you know, is grueling, grueling work. Uh, when we were doing it, it was 12 hours in the sun. For a while, we did 13 hours for some reason, uh, not including the time there and back. And it was hard, hard work. And then you came back, and you had a meal, and then you went and slept in your tent. And, you know, it was, it was wild. Oh, sorry. The kids can be dismissed. I forgot to say that. So carried away and excited by this sermon. Okay. And let's just bless our children. Lord, I just bless our kids, and I pray that they would be uh, blessed in Sunday school and bless uh, Paula as she prepares this, the lesson. Amen. Sorry about that. I always forget to dismiss the kids. All right, back to uh, tree planting. Um, something that was really nice about the tree planting, though, I mean, there was nothing nice about the work, nothing at all. I hated it. I had a headache every single day from about 11.30 on till 3 or 4. I could not get my hydration figured out. Um... But there was a community there. Like everybody had suffered the same terrible day. And at the end of the day, we all sat around the campfire or just sat around the circle in front of the, the, the snack shack or whatever. And most of the guys were drinking a beer, some were smoking a joint, and we were just relaxing and, and chilling at the end of the day. And it was an interesting time hanging out with people that this sheltered Christian kid had never really hung out with this sort of, with people like this from these backgrounds. But there was a really neat community and a really neat fraternity and friendship there. And we would often kind of toss around these questions in amongst the discussion about the day and how terrible the weather was and, or how good the weather was and different tips about our equipment. We would pose questions like this. And I could very easily imagine somebody asking the question like, is it possible that God could create a rock so heavy that he could not lift it? Because that's how the question's supposed to be posed, right? Could God create a rock so heavy that he could not lift it? And then somebody is supposed to say something like, well, if God is all-powerful, he could create a rock so heavy that he couldn't lift it. And somebody else would say, well, but if God was all-powerful, he could lift even that rock. And then everybody would go, oh. <laughs> and we would think, and we would go back and forth, and we would discuss. And nothing would really be accomplished, but we would all enjoy the discussion. At the end of it, we would feel smart about ourselves, and um, we would be quite pleased with ourselves. And that's how it's supposed to go. The way that I posed it, could God make a rock so heavy that I could not lift it? You say, well, that's, that's not even a question that doesn't fit in this discussion because, well, why not? Why doesn't that fit? Well, because obviously God can. Obviously God could create a rock so heavy that you or I could not lift it. That's not even a question. So why is it so easy? Let's stop to think about this for a second. Why is that question too easy? Well, it's too easy because we know so much about ourselves. We, we know quite a bit about ourselves, our limitations, our strengths, our abilities. We know a lot about rocks. These are two finite things. 
And so it's easy to think about a rock, what that is, and it's easy to think about us, what we are, and to think about that it would be easy, it would be possible and easy for God to create a rock so heavy that we could not lift it. But let's get back to this. We are finite, and that's, we, we know, it's easy to know about ourselves because we are finite. So since we are finite, why are we making such grand pronouncements about God? Why are we spending all this time around the proverbial campfire talking about what God could or could not do with such, you know, bravado and such certainty? And we're so sure that God could create this rock or that he couldn't or that we could figure out the answer. When we are finite and God is infinite. In fact, this discussion is tame in comparison to the sorts of discussions we often have about God. Well, if there is a God, then why would he do this? And why would he let that happen? And I think God should have done this, and I think God should have done that. You know, it's a cultural maxim. It's, it's a rule. It's a norm. It's everybody knows this. You say, judge not. It's like one of the only Bible verses that every tree planter knew. <laughs> that judge not, man. Um, and also uh, that God created every green thing for our good. Uh, something like that. Um, but everybody knows you don't judge. You don't judge. Why not? Why don't you judge somebody else? You don't walk down the street and say, oh, that's a terrible person just because of how they're dressed or the color of their skin or whatever. Why not? Because who are you to judge somebody else? What is your moral authority? You don't have a right to judge somebody else. Who are you? What do you know? Again, you're finite. You don't know very much. You don't know anything about this person. You haven't walked a mile in their shoes. You don't know who this person is. You can't just judge them based on, on what they look like or something like that. And don't you know they're a person too? They have dignity. They have value. This is a person we're talking about. No matter their gender, their color of skin, their age, they're a person. Who are you to judge somebody else? And yet we're so quick to judge God. We are so quick to jump in and make these grand pronouncements about what God should do, what God shouldn't do, and have these great moments of crisis and doubts of faith saying, God, I can't believe in you because of what you did. And I'm not belittling that. But is our problem sometimes that our God is so small that we don't have the right God at all? Because if God was anything like the Bible describes him, then we wouldn't be able to make these sorts of pronouncements about him. Because who are we? What moral right do I have to pronounce a judgment on God? What do I know? Really, what do I know? In my short life, in my limited experience, what do I know about what it must be like to be a sovereign, almighty God? And don't I realize that God has dignity too? If a human being has dignity, then wouldn't the Holy One, the creator of all things, also have dignity? You know, when I was young, um, young teen, one of the greatest memories that I had was working at a Christian summer camp. And I had such great experiences as a camper that I asked if I could stay on. And I worked in maintenance for a few weeks. And then I came back. I spent two or three summers, and I just had a blast. Because it was one of the first times as a young, you know, just barely teenager that I was treated like an adult. And that, when you're just becoming a young man, that's a wonderful feeling. To have somebody tell you, what do you think we should do? Or give you real responsibilities. And when you follow through to really... Um, to reward you as you know, an adult would with respect and honor. 
And one time there, we were on this little work crew with a few other guys about my age, and there was a rock, and it was a big rock, about this big. And two of the other guys who were a bit older than me tried to lift it, and they couldn't. This was in our way, and we need to move it. And the one guy really tried, and he couldn't budge it. And so I got down there. And now, I was a pretty chubby kid at the time. But one thing I was proud of is I was pretty strong. I was a stocky, chubby kind of a kid. And so I got down there. And even though I was two or three years younger than this kid, I figured I could move it. And I got down there, and I, I really strained, and I couldn't even budge it. You know, it was a big rock. And the kid that had just did it said, you couldn't do that, could you? I said, no, no, I guess I couldn't. He said, tell me that you couldn't move that rock. And I said, I could not move that rock. It's like, okay. <laughs> and I'm not really sure what led him to do that. But for him, it was important to hear me say, I could not move that rock. Probably because I had been a little bit of a cocky kid earlier in the day. And he wanted to put me in my place. And all these years later, I remember that. That rock conquered me. I could not move that rock. That was my limit. You know, there's a list of things, quite a long list, actually, of things that I cannot do. I cannot fly. I cannot grow hair here. <laughs> but I can grow hair here. <laughs> I could not buy a Tesla, even if I wanted to. I cannot speak Mandarin Chinese. I cannot speak French without an accent. I cannot protect my children from every possible harm. I cannot predict the future with any degree of certainty. I cannot live forever. And I cannot tell you when I'm going to die. There are rocks that are too heavy for me to lift. And these things that I am not tell you who I am, do they not? Job is this really fascinating book that I've, I started off hating and I keep coming back to it over and over and over trying to understand it. Because if you know the book of Job, it's about this, it's this terrible story. It's a really terrible story about a good man that was living a good life and being rewarded by God. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, God decided to strip him of everything. And he lost his children, and he lost his wealth, and he lost his servants, and his marriage was on the rocks. And then his family, or his, his friends, started criticizing him. And he has this long discussion and dialogue with God. And it won several times throughout it. He never curses God. He never says, God, I hate you. But he says, I, I want to have a day in court with you, God. I want to discuss with you like I could discuss with a man. I feel like I was treated unfairly. Sure, I'm not perfect. You could always find sins in me because you're holy, God. You're perfect, and I'm not perfect. But look, I lived a pretty decent life. So why am I being punished like this? It's not fair. There's, there's terrible people that live terrible lives, and yet they're rewarded with wealth and, and vitality and health and family around them. It's not fair. And God's response to Job is very interesting. God meets with Job in a whirlwind, and he asks him a series of questions in Job 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recess of the deep? Can you bind the chains of Pallades or loose the cords of Orion, the stars? 
Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you hunt prey for the lion? Do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Do you give the horse his might? Is it by your understanding that hawks soar? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? And the answer to all these questions is no, no, no. I wasn't there when you created the world. I can't speak to the wind and make it stop. I can't go fight with Leviathan, the sea monster. God's answer to Job is a list of, fi- of his limitations and his finitude. And by implication, God's power and his might. And this, for some reason, is satisfying to Job. Job, at the end of the book, says, I hear now and I will speak. <coughs> no, sorry. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And what I get from that is that this answer was satisfactory to Job for some reason. Job was satisfied with this, with this powerful display of God's power, of his might, and a list of all Job's limitations and of God's powerful acts. And Job was satisfied. And I used to read this as, well, Job just got bullied into submission. It was like a little kid and a big kid on the playground. God was the big kid and he said, look, I'm stronger than you. And Job said, okay, okay. Enough, I'm not going to argue with you. But I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's the message of Job. I think the message of Job is that when you know what your limitations are, then you know who you are. You are your limitations. You are your age. You are your height. You are your ethnicity and your gender. You are your limitations. That's who you are as a finite being. And when you begin to know who you are and who you are not, then you come one step closer to knowing who God is. Because God is the unlimited one. God is the one who is beyond you. My name is, I am not. I am not able to fly. I am not able to create the world. I am not able to speak to eagles. I am not able to speak to the wind. But God's name is, I am. another story I want to tell you from my childhood. There's this time that we went canoeing as uh, some people from our church. And where I live was pretty far north. It was a three-hour drive from Walmart, this little town up in the middle of nowhere. And from there, we took an hour drive down a logging road. And then we got in canoes, and we paddled and canoed for about a week. And then we stopped at this lake, and we were having this. It was part of this discipleship sort of a, a thing program that we were having with canoes and camping and the activity for the day was to survive on your own for 24 hours with you know your basic sleeping bag no tent you were supposed to make one out of a piece of plastic and uh, you know journal and spend time with God and and be hungry and things like that and so I was out there on a rock and the first thing I did when I arrived at my place was to take a nap because I was tired and when I woke up I saw a storm rolling in and I thought I probably should have made the shelter first (laughs) Uh, But it was a little bit late at that point, so I went to my backpack to get out my rain gear. And at about that time, it started really raining. Like, well, raining like it was last night. It was really raining, like big drops of rain that would like smack on you. And I just got my, my backpack open, and I was just drenched. And I thought, well, I have to 
get dry clothes on before I can get my jacket on. And so I was starting to open my backpack and I realized, well, by the time I get something dry on, it's going to be wet before I can get the jacket on. And of course, when you're camping and you're a week away from anything, getting stuff wet is a big deal. So I didn't want to open anything. I said, let's just, let's just roll with it. There's nothing better to do. So I went out on, and there was a little rock that stuck out into the lake a little bit. And I just went out there and just experienced the storm. And it was a storm. It was a real storm. And it was, uh, they call it the land of the lakes because there's, there's just lakes and lakes and lakes. If you look at a map of northwestern Ontario and let your eyes go cross-eyed a little bit, it goes aqua because there's so much blue in the green. It's just, there's lakes everywhere. And what that does is an effect where the thunder just rolls, just just, it just rolls. I'm not going to try and imitate it, but it just, like one thunder starts and it just echoes, balances back and forth across all these lakes and another one starts and it's just this continual thundering rumble. And the, the lightning was forking across the lake and it was just pounding rain on my head and on my shoulders and the, the waves were crashing up on this rock and I just thought, I am so small, you know, I am so small. And God is so big. And I started to sing, um, Oh Lord my God, when I... And about that time, it started to hail on me. <laughs> and I was like, I can't even be out here. I'm going to get struck by lightning or something. And so I went under something that was a little bit more uh, safe than just sitting on the rock. But that was an incredible experience of experiencing nature in all of its glory. Most of the time, we're fairly sheltered from nature. We don't experience that. God is a little bit like that, that he is beyond us. He is beyond us. I want to just observe something. This rock here, this is a rock. It's a fairly small rock. I was going to get a bigger rock from home, but I thought if one of the kids grabs it, um, this can cause less damage than one of the other rocks I might have found. This rock we could pass around. We could, we could manipulate this rock. We could go to this rock, bring this rock home. I could give it to you. I don't know why I would give it to you, but I could. <laughs> and you could deal with this rock on your terms. But something like Mount Everest can't be moved. You can't move Mount Everest. You can't bring it to you. You can't deal with it on your terms. If you want to see the view from the top of Mount Everest, you need to go to the Himalayas and climb Mount Everest and see the view. And that's a journey that you might not survive. You need to deal with some mountains on their terms. You can't deal with mountains on your terms. And yet, do we sometimes approach God as though we can deal with him on our terms? Do we sometimes sit back and say, God, I can't believe in you because of. God, I'm not going to believe in you until you prove to me. God, I don't think that what you did was right because of. This is what Job did through most of his book until he met with God. And I think God's response to Job and God's response to us would be, who do you think you are? In all honesty, who do, who do I think I am? As God would say to Job, were you there? Can you? Are you able to? Who are you? You are finite. And just what do you think that God is? that he would be able to move himself to you, that he would be able to conform to our world. 
God is the best being that could be imagined. He is the creator of the universe. He is timeless. He is spaceless. He is immaterial. He is holy, which means he is all good. He is the judge, which means all goodness and justice relate back to him. How could we expect God to meet us on our terms? If we're going to meet with God, we're going to go have to go to him. Would you want a God like this? Sometimes, unfortunately, when we talk about God, it sounds as though we're speaking about a small God, a finite God who is apologizing, who's always loving us, never <coughs> angry, never judgmental, who is obedient, maybe even a little bit needy. Oh, please, oh, please, let me into your heart. Heaven is so lonely without you. I just want you so bad. Is that the God of the Bible? But we have a promise in Matthew 7, 7, that those who seek him will find him. If we seek him with our whole heart. If we want to go see Everest, we need to go to the Himalayas. If we want to see God, we have to see go to Jesus Christ, who is his son, which is the way that he has revealed himself to us. You say, well, how can we go to Jesus? That happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus said, you search the scriptures earnestly because you know that in them you will have life. You need to come to me through scriptures to have life. So the point of what we've been saying is this. When it comes to God, we need to proceed with caution. We need to proceed with caution. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of evil. <laughs> Sorry, let me rephrase that. <laughs> <laughs> the love of money is the root of all evil. <clears throat> The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What that means is that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you don't fear the Lord, you don't know anything about anything. The first thing you need to know is that there is a powerful God who is good, but he is also just. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if we understand this, and if we understand how powerful and how good and how strong and how just God is, then we would be like uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.2, we should let our words be few as we come to the Lord, because he is in heaven and we are on earth, and we understand far less than we think we do. We need to proceed with humility, understanding that there is much for us to learn and very little that we know. And we need to release our right to judge God. Rather, we stand under the judgment of God, who is the righteous one. God is the rock that we cannot lift. God is the one who is higher than us. You might respond to this, well, isn't this insensitive? Wasn't all this talk to Job insensitive? After all, Job was somebody that was seriously suffering. His heart was hurting. Why did God respond to him? I don't think, I, I, I could relook, but I don't think there was any mention of God's love in those chapters. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. All that God responded to Job was, you are limited and I am strong. Isn't that kind of a heartless response to Job? When people are hurting, don't they need to hear about the love of God? Well, of course, everybody needs to hear about the love of God. But it seems as though what Job needed to hear about was his limitations and God's power. And it's a little bit like in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why is it that in the valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil? Because God is with us. What, what aspect of God? His rod and his staff. The rod is like a little baseball bat. That would be for whacking the lions or whacking the bears or whacking the wolves. It's a demonstration of the power and the might of a shepherd. And the staff is for the sheep. It's for guiding them, counting them, and sometimes giving them a sharp whack on the head when they're going their own way. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. How is that a comfort when faced with death? The answer is that when we face down death and we know that our mortality is coming, the end is coming, we know that good wins. That the justice of God is directed against the evil in my heart and against the evil in the world. And at the end of the day, good wins. And that is a comfort. The prophet Elijah, as some of you know the story, went through a catastrophic moment of personal loss, fear, and depression. He was so distraught that he was suicidal. And he went to the mountain of God. And God met with him first with a strong wind, then an earthquake, then a fire, and then a still small voice. And until we feel the power of God and tremble before him, I don't think we're ready to hear the still small voice of God. Well, what good is a God who is big and fearful and beyond me? The answer is that in times of trouble, a big God is a God that we can run to for safety and we can find rest for our soul. I'd like to end with reading Psalm 61, 1 to 4. Hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. This is the word of the Lord.